Welcome to another exciting episode of Hustle Like You Broke, where we remind you it is still Groundhog Day out there, but we are still coming to you with a fresh take every Tuesday and Thursday. Today should be no different. Very excited to have a veteran of the industry, a nearly 40-year veteran of the production business, Mickey Kerbishley, is with us today. I will tell you a little bit about him in just a minute. But first, my esteemed colleagues, the always exciting and daring Christine Dallas coming to us from Miami, Florida. Hello, hello. From Los Angeles, California, the one true MF, the other true MF, Mr. Kyle Hamilton. Top of the evening, nice Tuesday morning on this Beautiful day in Southern California, maintaining. One day we will ask you how it is evening and morning at the same time. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting, but it's very plausible. And it's true. Constant state of mind. <laughs> kind of like that always five o'clock somewhere mentality. <laughs> Technically, yes. Good evening. And then the one, the only. From the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, my brother from another mother, Chris Lee. What's going on here? Banks is in the building with another breakfast cocktail. I was waiting for that. Sounds so refreshing. It really does. Little tequila sunrise for you today. Good thinking. Good thinking. Good day to celebrate that. When I get off this keto, I can't wait to have one. There you go. Is is tequila not keto? (laughs) Nothing is keto unless it's just meat and cheese. Copy. Okay. So, (laughs) not even sure where to go with that, Banks. I assume the homeschooling is still proving a challenge for you, sir? Absolutely, as why I'm having a breakfast cocktail. Every day. Does it make it better, though? It makes it bearable. Not better. (laughs) Bearable. Copy. (laughs) I tell you what I do to make it bearable in a different way, minus the alcohol. Today, I decided to break up my coronation Groundhog Day experience by running a series of errands. Two different supermarkets, a convenience store, a liquor store, a pet store, most of what I need. But why the fuck are there no paper towels anywhere? And why is it only generic TP? Who wipes their ass with generic TP? I don't understand these things. Can someone please enlighten me briefly? It's panic buying. Everybody bought up (laughs) the good stuff first, and then we're left with all the shit. Trust me, I'm in the same boat with you. I'm waiting for my Charmin to reemerge at some store. But I've gone on quests for weeks at a time, 10 12 stores at a time looking for my beloved Charmin. But I'm constantly wiping my ass now with 99 cent store, big lots, just deplorable brands. This is just unacceptable. Maybe you need a bidet. <laughs> no, thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> Kyle, I'm sure with your hand washing routines and all of that, 
you've got a solution for general cleanliness that you could please enlighten all of us about. And let's keep it light for a minute and related to something other than wiping our rear so that we can introduce our esteemed colleague and perhaps he will continue to think of us as esteemed as well. All I can say is a bidet give you the fresh of the freshnesses. And then after that, you can wash your hands in peace. There it is. Well, on that note, (laughs) without further ado, and I apologize to our guest for this dreadful. It could be the worst segue ever to me. (laughs) I got to be honest with you. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I told you we like to keep it light and we dare to be different from all the rest. So there it is. But you've heard his voice now. This gentleman came into the business at the ripe young age of 16. And he is the epitome of a hustler as far as I am concerned. And that at heart is truly who we speak to, for, and about as we dare to represent the working class heroes of the concert industry. So Mickey Kerbishley, ladies and gentlemen, started out at 16 working merch. And, and I've been saying for years that my son is coming on the road. He's 10 now. As soon as he's old enough that I can leave him out of my sight, I am putting him on the road on one of my tours doing merch because that's where you get your start. That's what you can do before you move into a more technical role, a more uh, sophisticated role, carrying boxes, checking in the merch product, counting, what have you. Um, but but to, to do that from 16 with ACDC no less, Mm -hmm. and then to move into a role with lighting and to move up within the industry and over the course of nearly 40 years to ultimately be in a senior management level role with three of the biggest companies in the business, PRG, Tate Towers, and now Solotech. I mean, that just speaks volumes to to your integrity, to your fortitude, to your likability. Um, I, I, I could run out of accolades if I keep going, Mick. So please, welcome. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, it's funny, you know, and, until you do one of these these sort of podcast stroke interviews, it, it's an amazing thing because it, it it makes you think back. It makes you spend a bit of time thinking back because you think, oh, what are, you, what are we going to talk about? And then you think, to like, you know, like you just said, at 16 years of age, I was selling T-shirts for ACDC. And, it remi- and you start to think and you laugh. You start to think back about some of the things that you did. And you can just imagine 1984, 16 years of age, straight out of school, all of a sudden, I didn't even know who ACDC was. I'd never heard of them. But, Blasphemy. Uh, yeah, obviously, never heard of them, honestly. And and uh, and you go to the first show, all of a sudden there's cannons going off and bells, and there's, you know, there, there's, you know, you, you, the only t- I think the only T-shirt we had was a black T-shirt with a white ACDC on it. And, uh, you know, back back in those days, there was no real tour accountants. That, and if there was, they certainly never came out front. They never, they never came out to check on the T-shirt stall. So you could pretty much charge anything you wanted, really. You know, if you if you if you if you'd spent too much money in the bar the night before, you could just put the price of the scarves up by fifty p, and uh, and make yourself some extra beer money. Um, 
So not that that ever happened. I, I said could. I don't. It, it didn't never happen. No, it could. No, if you want, if you were that kind of person, obviously, I was at sixteen. I was already totally. You know, no, that would never cross my mind. But yeah, so um, amazing time. And Jake Berry, funnily enough, was the was the production manager on that tour. It's the first time I ever met Jake Berry. I was sixteen, and he was a he was already a, a, a very proficient production manager forty years ago, which is quite amazing to think about. Hey. Yeah, great. And I and I fell in love with the lighting guys. That was the the thing, like you said before about putting your son on a tour. When you're a merchandiser, you're not really part of the crew. You're sort of on the edge. You you know you can sit in catering, but you're not really in the click. You're you know in 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 those days there was no video guys. It was just literally lighting and audio and a rigger. Um, but you get to see everybody. You see that I, w- I could see that the lighting guys were the first in, the last out. They were they would seem to be having the most fun. So I fell in love with that that world, and I got a job at Tasco when I when I finished that tour. I I did a couple of other little things. I think I did Barkley, James Harvest, and a couple of others. And Tasco were the the only sound company I think that had offices both in London and and in America. They were the first truly global company. And I got a job with them uh, cutting gel in the back back room, like looking after counting the drapes, cutting gel. And um, and then a guy called Steve Arch, who's a legendary lighting guy, was was working a load-in for Elton John down at Bray Studios. And he asked me if I would come with them to make up the, the numbers. And I went down to help with the load-in, and I ended up doing a, a world tour with Elton John. And much like a lot of the people that you talk to nowadays, they, they fall into it that way. And uh, the next thing I know, I was a lighting guy for Elton John for a couple of years, which was another amazing journey. You know, in the in the in Elton's sort of real heyday, you know, what I mean, in the, in the mid eighties, mid to late eighties, he was on fire. So, and yeah, that was my introduction to to, to lighting in. in uh, well, quite the departure, I would say, from nowadays. And, and I definitely want to get into, later in the conversation, some of the differences you perceive between then and now. The, the notion of falling into an Elton John tour mm-hmm. now seems like a far cry. Um, there was no technology involved. There was no... It was, can you stay up really, really late and, and load a truck and get up really, really early and do it all again? Because there was no technology back in those days, the smartest guy on the tour was the dimmer man, and that and they were always like middle class because they were like, you know, we were we were up at the like on the on that tour. I remember Jonathan Glynas was the was the dimmer man. He never came on the stage once. He would sit down there reading the Guardian with his feet crossed, and you know, he would read. It was a middle class. It was like the most. He was like a snob. He was like because he was the only guy who had any technical ability. We were just pulling cables, you know, you know, banging truss together, and and you know, he he was. We would just feed him the cable, and he would plug it in. We had no idea what went down on down there. That technology that that when you press a button, three hundred you know three hundred feet away at front of house, somehow a light would come on up in the up in the air, and there was no moving lights. I don't think at that point. Maybe that maybe no, there wasn't at that point. It was just park hands and and color changers. But there was definitely no moving lights on that tour. Um, well, it's, it's funny that just in our first few minutes, three things jump out at me. And, and, and there's always this strange commonality 
I find this common thread between the conversations we have with, with a number of people in the industry. It's funny that you reference the middle class, that this dimmer was, was essentially the middle class person. We were just talking to uh, Adam Blackstone, one of the great musical directors the other day. And he also, I, I, I guess I initiated in that case, was talking about you know the, the, the difference in how you define the working class versus the middle class and the upper class on tour, you know, be it ABC party or, you know, we didn't really get too far into it, but you kind of alluded what I would define as kind of the white glove guys like Chris and Kyle, as opposed to the guys that are pushing those boxes and first went into the venue and last one out and, and what that means and, and the status that comes with that, uh, you know, in the time that's, that's you spend on the road and how you kind of earn your stripes moving up and uh, in the, but the, the other thing there's two, another thing that came out of what you said was your reference to, you came in thinking the lighting guys were the coolest because they were the first ones in and the last ones out. I mean, talk about a hustler, talk about mm-hmm. a work ethic to see that and think, I want to be like those guys. I want to be up early. And then I want to be the last one here and go do that on the road for 10, 15 years, however many that you did. So again, a testament to you. And then the other thing, the third thing I was going to say, I'm sorry, please go ahead. I was just going to say, I think I had something to prove. I think as as the youngest guy, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I was short and stocky. You know, I was a rugby player as a kid and stuff like that. And I think, I think I had something to prove as well. You know, my dad um, is a uh, is a successful manager in the business, so he helped me get the job in in the in the merchandise company because it was his friend Peter Lubin, and I wanted to break away from that and do something on my own. I wanted to make sure it was my own thing, and I think I had a lot to prove as a as a seventeen year old kid then. Of you know, that's why I chose that that. The what I felt to be the hardest job out there, the rigger, and you know I did a lot of work as a as a as a rigger and a, as a lighting guy. So I think I saw it as a as a you know I just wanted to prove myself. Yeah. Well, I I respect and appreciate that, but I also think that shouldn't everybody, when they're coming into this business, whether they have a chip on their shoulder or not, however they get that first job, don't don't they have to prove themselves? Shouldn't they have to? aspire to be respected for the job that they do in order to advance this is a lesson that that yeah. i want to be imparting on on the young people coming in that that you know they need to put in that that work ethic in order to stand out and rise above and and go on to have the types of opportunities that you did later in your career yeah it's yeah you're right it's hard work like i say the 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 there was no, you couldn't train for it because you didn't need to in a way. There was no, like I said, there was no technology unless you were going to be a dimmer man. You know, the the, the designers had a different, you know, they, they had a totally different flair to the people that were on the stage building the shows, putting the shows together. Um, and yeah, it was it was just a work ethic, you know. It was, I don't, I don't even know if I ever really saw it as being in the rock and roll business for a long time as well. It was just hard work. You know, you spent more time pushing boxes and 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 climbing and doing things like that than you than you did with the show. Steve Arch, 
who was my mentor, famously said, if it wasn't for the load-ins, the load-outs, and the bits in the middle, this would be a great job. So it, it was the, the days off were wonderful, you know, um, but the but the, the 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 show in the middle. Let's say you're in. I, I did a lot of time with Judas Priest, um, for instance, back in their heyday when they were doing two nights at Madison Square Garden. They were one of the biggest rock bands in the world. We had twenty five trucks. Um, the audio, I can't remember what it was because I was lining up, but I think it was Hardy Gold or something like. You guys would probably know better than me, and it used to come in in eight like 12 foot stacks ratchet strapped together and you would push the whole thing around in one big one big piece but there was 20 22 trucks of stuff that wasn't really designed to tour a lot of this stuff still hadn't been designed to tour at that point you know tate had bit were on the scene they were making some scenic things but they were big and heavy and nothing was really designed to tour and it was just hard work so the period where the band were on stage the actual rock and roll part of it you are on the bus asleep or in a, <laughs> in a flight case asleep or any just sleeping anywhere you could. And that was the, you know, you would, that was it for those two, three hours when the show was on, that was your quiet time. You would just get away and escape and fall asleep. And the rest of it was just work, work, work. It was, it was, you know, insane. Those big, those big heavy metal shows back in those days. And I know it's the same now with people that are on the road. I know it is, you know, um, you know, unless you're the actual front of house engineer or the monitor engineer or the lighting designer, you know, if you're if you're on the crew, the the show time is 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 it, I guess maybe it's different now. There's a lot of show calls that go on there. There wasn't any show calls back then. There was nothing to do. You'd maybe run a smoke. No, you wouldn't. You'd maybe run a follow spot if you needed extra money. But you know, it was sleeping. well. The third thing you said before, which I think speaks to what you just alluded to now in terms of the work that needs to be done during the show is the technology piece. Now, most of what you were saying in terms of the, the, the building the, uh, of the show, the, the teardown, the pushing boxes and crates and cases reminded me of a conversation we had with Joey Gallagher previously where we were talking about, I think it was with Joey, we were talking about how so much of the concert production business is more like a construction job than it is a music job. Um, so I think that that's some of what you were alluding to. And, and but, but in terms of the downtime that you say you had then in the absence of technology, I think that is what perhaps has changed now because you need those automation guys mm -hmm. at the stage. You need those techs supporting audio, supporting lights, supporting video in the case of what if, because unfortunately the case of what if, even on the biggest, best, most sophisticated tours still happens. Mm -hmm. So we need to prepare for that. Those guys need to be guys, girls, women um, need to be, um, need to be on call there. It is, you know, not necessarily all hands on deck, but, but most hands on deck during yeah. a show call. It's all communicating with its, with itself. Everything's communicating now. Um, whereas before it, 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 it wasn't, you know, even the, even the moving light operator at when, when the VL one first came on the scene, there was, um, there was probably only three or four moving light operators in the world in rock and roll. And Gersh was, was one of the, the main ones that used to be a lot of the big rock and roll shows, but you know, um, the, the, they were separate. They wouldn't, they, they would come in and they would do their thing and they would, you know, they would even, 
there was the, the the back in the day they used to hide in in rooms in the dressing room or whatever they'd find their own room so they could open the back of the light and work on it because it was a top secret no one was allowed to see in the back of them um but they they would they wouldn't communicate none of the they had their own desk they had their own snake they had their own dimmers everything was totally separate to the lighting guy who was pressing the buttons on the park hands and he would be uh the the the, the verilite technician would be be running his system so none of those systems spoke to each other now they're all everything's combined you see when Tate come on on site their system is talking is talking to our system and and the, the video is locked, locked in everything's everything's uh connected in some way whereas in those days everybody was on their own yeah. so sometime in the mid to late 90s you get the opportunity to come off the road to go to work at LSD and you do that, and that, of course, sets the table, sets the stage for the next 20, 25 years where you go on to run those high-level jobs at PRG, at Tate, at Solotech. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that was uh, – I was on the road with Eric Clapton. I was Eric's um, tour manager at that point looking after – we had like a pretty super band. We had George Harrison, we had Phil Collins playing drums, Steve Ferroni, Nathan East, Greg Fillingaines, Phil Palmer. It was like one of those super bands. And what 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 happened was just prior to that, so just to set the scene, it, I was probably 20, I think I was 25 years old. And we were, we were doing a show at Alpine Valley. I was a lighting guy. Tom Kenny was a designer. I was the lighting technician. We were doing a show at Alpine Valley. Stevie Ray Vaughan was the support act and there were five helicopters backstage that were to take the band back to uh, the hotel in, in, just, in just outside Alpine Valley. And five helicopters took off and only four of them made it. One of them, one of them crashed and hit the, hit the ski lift and it killed Stevie Ray Vaughan, Nigel Brown, Colin Smythe, the, the agent from CAA and the pilot, obviously. That was a night that changed my life. So one minute I'm a lighting technician and the next minute we, we've had this terrible, it was the beginning of the tour and we'd had this terrible accident. We'd lost a bunch of our friends and Colin Smythe, one of the, one of the guys that died was the, was the, the other tour manager, Peter Jackson and Colin were the tour managers. So Eric got us all together. We were obviously devastated and he, and he said to us, listen, do you, do, if you, if you want to go home, we'll go home obviously. But if you go home, you're just going to be sitting there moping around, you know, what are you going to do? Why don't, let's just finish this. Let's just get on with the tour. Mickey will take over from Colin, um, you know, as a, and uh, we'll just make the most of it, but we'll stay together as a family. And, you know, we hear a lot about the, the family on the road, you know, that how those, how the, you know, that these families are formed on the road and stuff like that. And, it truly was something that I need. Cause like I say, I was on the road from a very young age. So I, that became my family. When I was on a tour, that became my family because I'm 16, 17, 18 years of age. Now I'm 25. I've just lost a bunch of my friends in a helicopter crash, including a legendary guitar player, Stevie Ray Vaughan, obviously somebody who was just about to really, really break, break big. And we decided to carry on with the tour. So I get, I get the job as the, as the, the, the other tour manager looking after the band. For, for Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Phil Collins, people like that. And um, that changed my life. So I spent a bunch of time with them. But I'd, by the time I came off the road, I'd already stopped being a lighting guy. And I'd started this, this 
work as a as a tour manager. And um, in Australia, with Eric Clapton, John Wiseman showed up at the hotel, and we got hammered and we rolled around a bit for a couple of days. And he said to me, he said, "I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to I'm going to offer you a job. I'm going to take you off the road, and you're going to come and work for me at Verilite." So I thought nothing of it. And six months later, I got a contract through the post, totally unsolicited, an offer of a job at Verilite. And I was between tours and I really did want to be off the road. So I took the job and I lasted probably about six or eight months there. And I went from there to LSD because that was one of the, one of the companies I'd been working for. They started to, to you know, they, they were on the up. They'd invented their own moving light at that point and blah, blah, blah. So I, that, that's how that happened. I went from lighting guy to tour manager to very light person, salesman to LSD, then I was part of the, the group that sold the company to PRG, and I stayed with PRG for 18 years, really. Hey, Mickey, um, so, talking about Very yeah. Light, for those that don't know, why was that such a big deal at the time? Um, uh, well, Very Light were the only, yeah, yeah, they were the only moving light company. Um, they, they were, they'd invented the, uh, the moving light. What happened was, years and years ago, a guy called um, Rusty Bruchet and, and Jim Bornhorst were touring with, I believe they were touring with Genesis, but Rusty was the front of house sound guy for the likes of Led Zeppelin. And, you know, he was a pretty, pretty legendary industry guy. And in the early 80s, they were on the road. Correct. And if I get this wrong, slightly wrong, but the, the, the basis of it is right. They were on the road with, with um, Genesis. They were on, having a break. They were sitting in their garage in Dallas and they'd been working on a scroller so they had these two motors with some colored gel between them and they worked out that if you put little markers on the different pieces of gel you could scroll them from side to side in front of a park and and it would change color and they were this was like a legend a, 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 a revolutionary thing because back in the day we would they would just be red blue white gels that were sitting in front of the, the cans and you would turn them on or off and that was it these guys had come up with this amazing invention where you would scroll the, the colors from side to side then one of them i think it was jim turned around and said but hold on a minute if we added two more motors to this we could make it move and there was like that eureka moment so but of course they had no way of doing it so they went back to genesis to tony smith phil collins and mike rutherford and said look can you lend us some money we're, we're going to develop this move the world's first moving light so they, they jump on board, they start this company, Verilite, and they spend a bit of time and they, they come up with the VL1, which moved from side to side, up and down, changed colors, and had gobos that, that flipped in front of, to change the beam shape. And just on a, on a side note, jump forward, and then obviously halfway through the Genesis tour and halfway through a show in Barcelona, when all these Spanish teenagers are stoned out of their brains watching, watching Genesis, all of a sudden the lights move for the first time in the history of, of rock and roll, all of a sudden, all these lights start to pan and tilt and, and move around. And of course, that might, you, know, you could just imagine what kind of, what that felt like for a, for a punter that has only ever seen a static show or maybe some oil wheels and stuff like that. So legendary moment in, in rock and roll was, would have been then in Barcelona. Jump forward 30 years and I'm at the, the, rolling, uh, the U2 show with The Claw and I'm sitting with Rusty Bruchet for the opening night of U2 in Barcelona. 
and I'm sitting next to him and he's got a tear in his eye and he starts telling me the story. I said, well, you know, what's up? He said, I oh, said, it was here 35 years ago in Barcelona that we did the first ever show with Genesis with a, with a, with a moving light. And he told me that story. So, you know, like, and the point we were talking earlier prior to this, we had a little chat and it, the, the great thing about this business is the people that the iconic people who started this industry that had these eureka moments and that built this fantastic industry that we're part of are still in it. They're still here, still contributing, still doing stuff, still coming up with amazing, amazing things. And uh, that that's what one of the things that makes this business so unique is that the, the people who actually started it are still in it and still innovative and, and, and uh, there you go. Well, that's fantastic. And we've talked a lot about this being such a young industry. And as you just said, uh, you know, that the, the, the founders, the, the kind of cornerstones of, of so many parts of this industry are still with us, still doing it. But, but fast forward to now, let's talk a little more about the technology piece because I've always been fascinated by how, you know, the production vendors have repositioned themselves not as a scenic company, as as Tate was known, but as a technology company, as Solotech has done as well, in, in that you offer comprehensive solutions in audio lighting and video, and perhaps more, because as I understand it, even up until pretty recently, you guys were in the process of buying you Solotech in the process of buying smaller vendors and absorbing them um, into your portfolio. And you yourself referred to Solotech as a technology company um, prior to our recording today. So tell us more about that, about the industry today versus years back and, and how the vendors have emerged as power players in the technology space. Um. Oh, long, long subject, but yeah, it, it, um, it's, uh, how do I get my head straight on this one? Yeah. Um, yeah, they, like when I started, obviously, yes, it was a cottage industry. It was a, it was, uh, it was a bunch of small companies, um, trying to, you know, buying, buying technology and just renting it for a, for a profit. Now the, um, the technology is so advanced and like we say, all, all, all aspects of a show have to communicate with each other, lighting, audio, video. Um, and the, what the, one of the biggest, I think the biggest moments with us in a way was the, was when Napster came along and when the, when the internet sort of killed recorded music in a way. And I'll, maybe I'll jump around a little bit, maybe, I, but, but, but I think that, I think that that was one of the biggest moments for us because I remember being jealous of the of the of the of the record company guys. So imagine you're you're loading out a show, you're you're covered in dirt, you're pulling the snake. It's one o'clock in the morning, and and you see all the guys coming out of the backstage party with their glasses of champagne, with their arms around the girls and all that. And they're the then generally the record company people, and we were the guys pulling the cable. We were the they were, you know rock and roll production companies and touring lighting and video companies were were struggling to 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 survive really at, the, at that point and the record companies were making all the money and that got flipped on its head a few years ago really with the Napster thing and of course we all know that the record that the, the bands now make a vast sum of their 
know, under normal normal circumstances, they're making 70, 80% of their revenue from touring. So our world just got flipped on its head. And with that, the, the, you know, the, 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 and then also you got all these new companies came along. Verilight wasn't the only lighting company now. There's all these other lighting companies making product. And, and there was a real, a very, very, it became very, very competitive in the technology in the technology side. And, and as these, like, with the with the um, globalization of our business, I, I I think that I remember, you know, te- that over that period, you could go to Argentina, you could go to Brazil, you could go to Australia and Japan, and you wouldn't need to have the same show you had at Madison Square Garden or Wembley Arena, for instance. But with the internet, with the collapse of the re- recorded market, with the with the growth of of the you know the, the the reliance on touring, all of a sudden you had to take that show everywhere. Because the kids have seen the Madison Square Garden show on their laptop, and if you show up in in Argentina with a black drape and two trusses and some follow spots like we used to do, they're pretty disgruntled. They want to see the same thing. So, so all of a sudden, there's more revenue in what we're doing. There's more money in the in the global touring thing, and it's and it truly is global. We 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 do it. We're trying to recreate the same show everywhere and give the same experience everywhere. So. You know, all of this stuff happened really, really quickly. You know, the multiple new, new, new um, products on the market, much more money in the industry, and like almost like a, an arms race between the artists as well. They goes the one artist goes to see another show. Um, certainly in the in the in the, the sort of mainstream pop world, they would go see somebody and be like, okay, I want that, but I want more, and so on. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, where I just got rambling there, but it it um the whole the whole industry in the last 20 years has turned into a global uh, bohemoth and and one of the biggest things that's happened i think to us as well is that we become a partner with the with the client now so the designer you know they the designer the producer and the and the equipment provider we truly are partners because there's such vast sums of money involved we don't do many tours that have less than 20 10 or 20 million dollars worth of product on them these days when you're when you're doing the, the the major arena size shows and i know it's the same in audio the money that's tied up in in equipment on these shows um is astronomical so you have to be a partner with with the with the producers and the designers and those people to for it to really make work you're no longer just the guy they call for a for a couple of straight trusses and, and some par cans you're it's a it's a full service that, that we're providing all of these, all of these major um, touring production companies. So, Mickey, as you describe, you know, we've got we've had changes with the technology, and then you've had this interesting course where I don't know if you feel like you're more lucky in your experience. Were you in the lucky the lucky guy in the right place at the right time, or was it more circumstantial? But with your life experience in this industry, how do you feel um, about the female aspect of it? Obviously, we still are light on the female lighting techs and such. And do you think that's an educational thing or is that because people don't know the industry exists or do you feel that there's other reasons for that? It's a, I, you know, it's funny because the moment you said that, I, I, start, I thought back on one of my first ever tours. And if I think back to the very light techs, the, what, Liz Berry, was 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 one of the first female technicians that that I saw on the road that showed up, and then there was Robbie, who was a Verilite technician, another female, and they're still going, they're still working. So this was forty years ago, and they're still doing stuff. Um, it, yeah, it was it was um, 
I've got to I've got to think about it because I think about what what I went through. The 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 the, the females that came on the road initially were were the um, caterers because I remember being on the first tours where caterers showed up. There wasn't caterers before. You would you would find your food locally or they would bring it in. And then all of a sudden, Debbie Bray came up with this idea of of sending people on the road, and they and so all of a sudden we had that was the first time we really had females on the road amongst amongst the crew, and it went fantastically. You know, it changed the di- the, the 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 dimension of of, of pirate ship. Of a, of a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? You had all of a sudden you had no, you had some accountability to your behaviour, and you and it changed the way people behaved. You know, um, some people struggled with it, but I was lucky. I was young at that point when that when that happened. And then I remember the Verilite with the Verilite were big proponents of hiring female crew. Um, like I say, Liz Berry and 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 um, Robbie really spring to mind. So for me, it was totally. It's always been totally natural to have to. You know, I worked with a lot of females in the business, um, and I do surround myself with with females probably more than the the most in a way. I if I if I look at what happened to me in the UK, uh, Joe Mackay and uh, and Yvonne Donnelly. To just as just and just there's just two I can think of. There's so many that I can think of, but the two people that really made a big impact on me were were, were girls that came and worked with me. I was young as well at the time. We were all in our twenties, but they came and worked with me, and we set up the London operation for LSD. And it was like a it was a pirate, you know, LSD. Just the name LSD, you know, the, it was a bunch of maverick lunatics. I mean, they LSD. You mean it wasn't for light, sound, and design? You mean LSD? No, it was less else? sense, less sense than donkeys <laughs> is the best one that I heard. But um, but yeah, it, but but I remember that those two girls in in particular came and and grew up with us. Now now Joe Mackay is is a very very successful production manager. She does Creamfields. Um, she does a lot of work in the Middle East. And and Yvonne is running the UK operation for for PRG for lighting and video. So these are these are. So for me, I do I do think it's a it's a tough world for girls and for for women, but I think that that you know they're a, they're a, a huge asset to us. Um, you know, I, in my office now in in Los Angeles, there's one guy and four four women. It's just the way it is in in, in my office. It's not like I set out that way, to, but I, it just if a woman's if the woman's right for the job, then. It, She's right for the job. Some people so, have been known to say you know. they think it's a way the attention to detail is focused on, you know. But yeah, it, uh, absolutely, absolutely, because we're such a detailed business now. You know what I mean? It's it's so they're so complex what we do, and yeah, the the women are the women are um, I, can't, I mean they're sharper. They're 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 just more. They they, they I don't know. They, but I think at the end of the day, we can probably reasonably say that even still now, it's a challenge. For a young person, you know, in this case, female coming up, for them to even know the business exists and them to find a course that they could even follow to get in, it is still a challenge. Living on a living on a bus is, you know, with a, with a bunch of guys is is not for everybody, you know, because a lot of what we do, if you want to learn the business, generally there's you got to get in and get your hands dirty and get amongst it, and you got to be a certain type of person to to go through that. But I just think I think these days it's so much more, so much more. It's easier than it was back then. Just the, you know, the way people travel is is a lot 
we we had, we had horrible buses back in the day. You know, with no no a lot of the time we had tours with no bunks, so you would do long overnight drives to a hotel when you would check in. You didn't you couldn't sleep on the bus. You would be sleeping upright. And um, uh, I think I'm hoping that it's a better place to work now. I certainly feel that we we are. If I look at my my employee headcount, you know, we've got a huge amount of of females that contribute massively at every level to what we do senior management um you know all the way down to 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 the to the people that are making it happen on the on the ground level so i'm hoping that it's a better world but i'm i'm gonna you've got my i'm gonna be i'm gonna look at it in more detail and 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 see how we're doing but to me i know that we are a very um, we have a lot of females in. yeah well we'll follow up with that i think it'll interesting subject matter Hey, Mickey, um, I had a couple of thoughts while you were talking about just the evolution of the business and, you know, Solotech as a technology company and, you know, housing so many vital parts in the industry that, you know, are required to put on the show and looking at the current state of where we are and where we're going to be, you know, a year, two years from now, do you see companies having to diversify and take on more of a technology standpoint instead of being just a one-stop shop, you know, sorry, being a one-stop shop like Solotech is versus having to, you know, outsource to multiple companies, you know, in the future. I mean, you know, with your company, you guys are able to, you know, provide all these services and it comes out of one, you know, location. Do you see that as being the new norm? I think that what, what was happening was prior to the COVID situation, Lighting and video were would have been on a slow sort of convergence, very very slow convergence over the years, um, and audio has always really stayed stayed where it is. And I think, you know, I think it's probably going to stay that way in a in a for, for the. I think that lighting and video are going to merge much more. Um, and I think yes, it's great having one a one stop shop, but one of, one of the things that about you know about our industry is you you know if you you have to be you have to be good at everything if you're going to offer everything you know you can't be a lighting company that does video or a video company that does lighting not at our level when you operate at the level that we operate on you know you certainly can if you're if you're operating on a theater level or you know or below but when you're so much you get to an arena arena level operation you can't be uh, a jack of all trades you can't be a lighting company that offers video you've got to be the best at, at, at everything if you're going to be considered for everything so so we don't we don't push you know multiple uh disciplines on 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 people most of the time they come to us and would uh, for and and they know everyone knows what everybody does now so they'll you know most of the time we'll be asked to do lighting or lighting and video or lighting and video but it's it's quite rare that we get asked to do all of them. Mm-hmm. But when we do, there's you know it's a it, there's a there's a good reason for it. So I think that to answer your question, it, you know the the specialists um, depart com- companies will always you know there'll always be a place for them. But I think what this has taught us more than anything is that you have to be diverse in not only not only the product that you offer, but the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So. With, with us, we half of our company has always been what we call sales and integration. So 50% of what we do is refitting airports, 
uh, arenas, stadiums, you know, um, ice hockey rinks, and and or when when new stadiums are being built, they call us in to put all the TV screens in all the skyboxes or to put the audio around the stadium and stuff like that. So, so fifty percent of our business that so and that business hasn't stopped over through COVID. That has continued. It's taken a bit of a dip, but it's also going to be the first thing to to come out of of everything because you know it's it's uh you know someone someone said earlier about the fact that our business is close to a to um you know to to to, to what we would in england call building work um it, it i think that having both of those having rock and roll touring and a sales integration division is what's helped us weather the storm a little bit better and you know if you look at, at upstaging i spoke to huddleston when this all went down and he he all immediately was was repositioning his trucks to do um, to to deliver food to you know to, to deliver food to supermarkets and stuff like that. So you know he, having that diversification really has helped. And there's other people that are really dear friends of mine that have a lot lighting companies that only do one thing. They only do rock and roll touring, and they immediately just close down. They just shut everything down. They close everything down, and they weather the storm. So there's another. There's ways to get through this by just literally closing down and hunkering down and waiting for your particular business to reopen again. But then there's other companies that were able to diversify and go and do other things to keep themselves, keep revenue coming in, and to keep their people working. So there's been so many lessons through this, through what we've just been through. We, we as a as a as an industry have been bulletproof since its inception we have never ever taken a hit really because through wars famines assassinations doesn't make any difference people still want to be entertained there's still people still will go see shows do all that to be told that you can't go see a show you physically cannot stand next to somebody um we we've been bulletproof and we're not dead but we're paralyzed we're certainly not dead there's no way there's we're just paralyzed at the moment and and it will come back but there's been some some huge lessons that we've learned. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, Mickey, Kyle here. Hey, Kyle. So, for me as a front of house engineer, I've noticed over the last few years that most productions and production houses um, cater less and less to the audio portion of the of the production, and more so to the first video, then lights, then audio. How do you feel that that's changed over the years and why do you feel that audio is now, you know, basically take a backseat to all the visual now for concerts? Really interesting. Yeah. Cause it, 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 uh, cause I think we all remember when, um, you know, it was just lighting and audio. There was no video. There was like little, we would have, um, uh, you'd have a, a, like a curtain at the back that you could slide. You maybe had three different colors and you would pull them even on the big arena shows. You did that. Now, then, then all of a sudden, someone came up with the idea of having the projections either side of stage, and and uh, all of a sudden, the video guys showed up. And I, I think you're right. I think the the budgets have gone. Uh, the the budget is mainly there's more money spent on video now, most of the arena shows, than there is on lighting, and then and then audio after that. But there is there's still some bands who who the audio is the is the most important thing. I think um, certainly the you know but. But the visual is definitely has taken center stage. That arms race that's gone on as people have have become more and more to rely on touring revenue 
there's the feeling that yeah we've got to you know if you know once U2 came along and started doing their their stuff it really changed everything I think you know the first big big ones were the Rolling Stones when they Patrick Woodruff and Mark Fisher did those amazing Rolling Stones shows and then you know U2 came along and it got and and now you know that Beyonce thing a couple of years ago was spectacular the video screen in the middle that opened up and rotated you know it set definitely has been a bit of an arms race over the last couple of years with that with the visual element and you know is one of the results of what we've been going or what we're going to go through is it going to be that budgets are reduced on that level and people are going to have to go just take their foot off the gas a little bit i think that's probably going to be the case that that maybe that is going to slow down a little bit um yeah because for me it's a strange dynamic because like it looks beautiful and then you get situations like well i can't hear this well you cut the budget you know you guys put all the money and the visual and the lighting and you give me, you know, four cabinets aside, I'm being, I'm exaggerating of course, yeah. but yeah. you know, you don't have enough zones to, you know, to give ample amplification and to just, you know, and it's not about why you need so many cabinets. It's like you need cabinets for coverage, not just to make it loud. You know, people don't understand. It's not about the volume. It's about the, you know, just you filling up the, filling up the room with sound and, you know, well, you could just turn it up that hurts that gets to the point where it doesn't feel comfortable it's like you just have you know a tsunami of sound just coming at you because you you, you're pushing everything to the limit just to get over the audience and you spend all the money and if you add a few more dollars to the production budget for audio it would change the channel incrementally but you know it's 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 a rough situation when we're sitting there like yeah i'm out of pa yeah I, i could see the concert on the moon Uh, (laughs) I tell you, it's a really, really interesting thing because you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, if you saw what happened a couple of, a while ago um, in the UK with the Spice Girls, regardless of why or what happened, the the fallout and the press from having bad sound, and it was, there was, there was reasons for it. There was no rehearsal. There was, you know, the band stood in front of the, the, you know, they were in the wrong place and stuff like that and they didn't rehearse it. But, but the point I'm making is that, when you have bad sound and you leave a show after the sound's been bad for whatever reason, that's that's as that is that's gonna that's gonna really change your your you you might not ever go see them again. You're hundred percent right. You might never go see it. Yeah, you might never go see that band again. And you'll talk about it. You'll you'll say, "Oh, they were terrible," but were they terrible? Was it just that they, you know, like you say, it, it did they not? apportion it properly did they not get you know did did the did the um you know like like you say the visuals are so important did the guy not get to hang his speakers where he should have hung them because of a visual because it was going to block something that that is visually important to the i mean for me i know personally i've been told your pa is in front of the video wall well that's where i mean mathematically we're, we're off center you know 30 35 feet that's where we just have to be. That's just where the, the PA works best. Mm-hmm. And now they're putting all these lighting um, video walls all over the place, you know, and, and you, it's like, where do you put the PA now? Do you put it behind it? No, cause it's not, it's going to block the PA. So what are the options that moving forward for productions to, to, to implement so that 
you know, one is not handicapped and the other one flourishes. I think that the, the key to it is making sure that everyone communicates from the start and is, is involved in every, every step of the way, not bringing, you know, having, having audio, um, the audio designer involved in the actual design of the show really is, is hugely important. So you've got your, you know, when we go, when we go and have our meetings for, for a lot of these big shows um, at Tay or wherever, there's normally a, a video, lighting, audio, scenic. They're all in there together and they're moving stuff around in real time, sitting in the same room, moving things around again. And, you know, gone are the days where you just, you can't tell the audio guy, this is where you're going to put your thing. You can't do that. It doesn't. Right. No, the, so in those meetings, who would be representing audio? Because I know for me, I've never been asked to be a part of a meeting and I'm the front of house guy. So yeah. Who would be the one representing the audio? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's either the it's either the systems engineer or the or the yeah, it's normally the the touring the touring systems engineer that would be involved in that. And I and I and I and I'm talking about the bigger shows like the U twos and the Stones and the things that go you know where they where they're actually building a scenic they're building the set for that show specifically and they 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 have to have them in. I guess when it's an just a standard arena type show where you've got your traditional big LED screen, maybe they're doing something special by curving, making these making shapes out of it. I think it's just the production managers and the and the you know they need to make sure that you guys are in those in those design meetings. A lot of the time when when we work, they are definitely involved in it, and the and the designers are sympathetic to the audio, but they they need to make sure that that communication is is open that channel is open um so yeah i think well, Mick, i think you just made kyle's day i can only imagine the size of the smile on his face right now giving the endorsement to the audio guy and the and, and the credibility to the to the value of considering the audio and the audio perspective mm-hmm. um I, I mean of course i agree with that but uh you know I, I love when Kyle gets up on his soapbox and starts <laughs> talking about it because I, I, I totally agree with him. And, and I love when I hear a great mix and, and he is one of the great ones. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah. Uh, but, but he's also right that it is often the audio where it's like, oh, we can live with one less audio guy, maybe cut a couple of boxes per side to make room for this other, you know, light or piece of video. You know, the other side of it is there's so much competition out there. That in the back of it, as, they, as the budgets are being done, you know they have a number in mind, and maybe they'll be they'll spend money in other places, and then they'll keep they'll chip. They'll be like, okay, well we'll just what we'll do is we'll just squeeze the the sub rent. We'll we'll squeeze the audio vendor a little bit more. Don't worry about it. And then what happens is you end up you know with you know there's there's a lot of competition out there. There's four or five companies vying for most tours, so you know. Do you end up with somebody that you maybe didn't really want to work with because they're prepared to do it for your budget, whereas the other guys that you're used to working with are like, you know, something I actually can't get down that low this time because I've got this so much work going on, blah blah blah. So I don't know. It, it it's a it's another big. So many of these subjects are just such big, great subjects, but you know, and you know, um, but the audio is so important. You don't, you know, I even me. I'm a lighting guy, 100%. I'm a lighting guy. But if I go to a show and it sounds bad, I'll talk about that for a long time. You know, whenever anyone asks me, how, what do you think so and I'll be like, oh, you know, it sounded terrible. So, and it might, I'm there for one snapshot of the entire tour, for two hours out of an entire tour. 
So it's important to get that right every night. Yeah. So separate from what's going on, well, separate from what's, you know, mm-hmm. past and, and without looking too far ahead just yet, mm-hmm. I just want to call attention real quickly to the fact that one, in the midst of this COVID-19 that we're dealing with and mm-hmm. the fact that your rental and your touring division is effectively shut down, mm-hmm. I do know that Solotech is a part of the uh, entertainment industry response group. Yep. So I want to call attention to that yeah. and uh, and say kudos. And we appreciate you being a part of uh, trying to create solutions mm-hmm. for what's happening and, 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 and trying to really help, you know, get the world back on track and, and do your part in, in what ways that you can. And I know you personally have also been involved in some fundraising efforts um, in in what was it masks that you've been? I, I I basically I bought two hundred thousand masks from a, a factory in China that used to make our LEDs and stuff, and I just bought them and got them shipped here. Rocket Cargo helped me get them here, and um, I then went round to a bunch of people and raised some money. I went to Live Nation, went to John Meglin and um, at uh, Concerts West, um, and a bunch of other people and got some pledges and I've been delivering them to the food banks, the homeless shelters. Um, I basically have someone coming up here today to pick up uh, 3000 to take to the Navajo uh, nation in, um, uh, and then another bunch that are going to go to Arizona to another um, native Indian um, reservation. So yeah, that's been something that's taken my mind off of the, off of the carnage. It was a, just a whim. I just called one of the food banks and asked if I could help in any way, and they said they needed masks. So being roadies, we, we got it done. And now we're delivering them to all over the place. I got I got 200,000, like I say. So that was good. Well, you're a good one for it. it was I good. Uh, definitely want to say how much we appreciate <laughs> that and call attention to your great efforts. I, I, I think that's not to be overlooked. Uh, we just have a couple more questions for you today. I uh, don't want to take up too much more no, of your time, but I, I would be lying if I said that they're short and easy questions to answer, mm-hmm. uh, although you can feel free to you know, give us the short answer if you prefer. Perfect. Looking ahead, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about this being a time you know, to kind of look at the industry, take stock of where we are, look at what's coming. We can talk about whether artists will come back slowly, when that'll be. I'd rather not have that conversation. Mm-hmm. We, we can talk about whether artists will spend less money in the short term. Again, that may be the case. I'd rather not dwell on that. I'm curious what we can do to make the touring industry a better place moving forward. I'm curious if you have any thoughts or wisdom on some small improvement that we can make from a sustainability standpoint, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from a you know just a an efficiency standpoint, from a cleanliness standpoint, as Kyle likes to talk about, mm-hmm. um, you know anything at all that that you would like to uh, impart on our listeners and on the industry at large in terms of using this time to our advantage to come out better and yeah. stronger. Now I haven't given this any thought, but the thing that springs to mind immediately is that is what's going on with me personally, with my own 
personal situation during this, right? And I think a lot of us are having the same thing. Like we were out of control. Everybody. It was like a like a giant ant's nest going crazy constantly on every aspect of our lives. I believe. If I'm if I'm if 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 I'm anything to go by, my everything is just it's been insane for the last thirty years. So maybe we just need to just take our what is teaching us is that we just need to take our foot off the gas and do more quality stuff and maybe maybe we do need to take a little bit more responsibility for for what's been going on and what we've been doing you know we we you know prior to this i I tell you just prior to this i've been working on a on a thing with some promoters and friends and things like that just the cup just plastic cups for instance the amount of plastic cups we use at, at these you know, and the amount of stuff that we throw away at every show and every festival and everything, you know, that, that everyone was starting to wake up to that. They were finding it, they were finding it difficult because there was, you know, hygiene issues of using the same cup over and over again or giving everybody a cup when they enter. But we've been really aware for the last few years about the, the damage that we're doing as, a, as an industry to the planet. So we've been trying, you know, LED has made a big difference. You know, the amount of power that we now consume for shows is so much more acceptable than it was and uh, and that so there's a lot of things that have made a difference and and yeah if we if we take what we are believe we're gonna get from this personally into our business and the business world as well will we just maybe we just calm down a little bit maybe 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 um I don't know. I know I haven't given this any thought. You've just sort of sideswiped me a little bit, but I just know that my life, in my life personally, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I'm not going to not going to be as crazy and as manic as I as I was when this thing hit. And I think we'll benefit from it. I think the company will benefit from it. I think our employees will benefit from it. I think I think we'll be you know because we've been we've all been busy fools. You know, it's one of those things, one of those sayings. You know, you've been we've all been busy fools, and I think we need to just take stock a little bit and just take a breath and look at what we're doing and work smarter. And I don't think it, I don't think necessarily that the, that the, 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 you know, that these, these competitive, these competitions that have been going on about being getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, I, I don't, I think maybe that, that will slow down a little bit. Well, we know it will obviously it slowed down drastically. It stopped, but, um, it, I think, uh, yeah, I think what I would do, what I'm going to try and do is take the lessons that I've learned personally over this and try and take it into my work life now for the for the foreseeable future. Well, there's there's a, a theory out there called the donut theory, where actually it, it, basically the premise is thriving doesn't always mean growth. And I could grow into that for hours, but I think that's essentially what you just alluded to, that you know, it, everybody's been so focused on growing that they haven't been focused on thriving, doing what's best, doing what's right, um, creating standards and practices, best practices for this industry. You know, big business in you know, finance, yeah. they talk about best practices. This industry, I never hear about best practices. I, I actually want to take my question just one step. I was going to say something, actually, because there was something that I thought about. Because obviously the other, the other thing, you know, is safety. You know, we've got to, you know, we've, we've, there's an opportunity now. What, what was happening was is that things were getting a little bit out of control. People were pushing the envelope, pushing, pushing, pushing. And, 
and I've been on many in many conversations over the last two or three years now with the scale of some of these shows with the production managers where they're at breaking point. And you go and you and you and they're like they they're like I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to do it. But they do it anyway because that's the kind of people they are. You know, you're, there's a hundred people out on the road building a show every day. You know, and they just do it and and because they do it, it then they, they'll push the envelope even more and stuff like that so maybe maybe as part of this exercise as well as maybe in part of the thing i'm talking about is taking a breath and looking that maybe maybe it will get be brought under control a little bit as well people will will be a little bit more respectful of of what everybody really i guess goes through to make this happen so there you go. Well, let, let me push the envelope just a little bit further. Yeah. And, and let me ask you a quick question. This one, you can just say, no, that's a terrible idea. Oh. Or, or yeah, there's something to that. I'm curious if what should happen in the near future is some sort of collection of experienced individuals representing a cross-section of the industry should actually form some sort of board to say these are the industry standards that we believe everyone, all promoters, all agencies, all vendors should adapt, all bus companies, all trucking vendors, mm -hmm. and they include safety standards, uh, sustainable efforts, mm -hmm. um, you know, a move towards biodiesel and other sustainable endeavors that, that make for ultimately a, a better, stronger industry. Am I crazy? No, I think it's a, I think it's a, a definitely an interesting um, proposition because, you know, like, like, you know, I, when, when, when this thing went down, what, what, what happened was there's every single sort of industry, every, every, everyone who runs a lighting company or an audio company or video company, we all just started calling each other. Because we're all mates, we all know each other. That's what some, what a lot of people forget, is that we all grew up in this business. So the, you know, I'll call Brian Grant. I'm, I'm an, I've, I've got an audio company. I'll compete with Brian Grant, but I've got no problem calling him up and speaking to him, and no problem calling Dave Ridgeway or, or, or like I say, John Huddleston, All these people, we're mates. We're, we're in this together, and we, we share communication. So, so yeah, maybe, maybe what the one thing we have to make sure is that, that when we come out of this, that. It's not business as usual. It's not the same as it was before. We have to use this as an opportunity to get our shop in order, you know? Exactly. And we have to. And it's one of the first things that Huddleston said to me when I called him, like, the week that we, we closed down. I called him and said, how are you doing? How are you getting on? And he told me about the masks he was making. And that's what, that's what inspired me to go buy 200,000 masks, is me talking to my competitor, John Huddleston, about what he was doing and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm shipping, shipping frozen food and or food and making masks. I was like, shit, I've got to do something. So I went and bought 200,000 masks and I've been distributing them. But the point is, one of the things he said to me was, we've got to work together to make sure that when we come out of this, when we, when we, when we, when we emerge from this, we have to work together to make sure that we have more protections in place for our crew. No, for, for, you know, for, for, the, for the crew... And I don't want to get too controversial or get too over about this, but but there's there's let's say we had 20, 30 shows on the road that cancelled. Ten of those shows did the right thing by their crew, and and twenty of those shows 
buried their hands in their in their heads in the sand, and and were like, you know, nothing to do with me, and and the guys, you know, it falls on us to 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 support. But the, these these are road crew that are one minute their family can't live without them, and then the next thing you know, there's a train crash, and uh, and everybody's on their own. There's no you know no no severance pay. No no wouldn't even give you three days wages to get you home. So, you know, we need to make sure we put some some more protections in place for our for our people, our our crew, the the guys out there. Um, but and many things, there's loads to do. But yeah, we can't go well, back to it. we can't go back to the, how it was. I think in many many ways, we need to sustainability huge. The impact we're making on the environment, which is which is whether you know whether you like it or not, there's some blame. Somewhere deep in in the in the in everything that's going on here, there's some some of it is is what we're doing to our planet and how we're treating our planet, how we're treating the Earth that we only one we've got. We'll never find another one. <laughs> so you know, there. Yes, we're accountable. We need to. We, and we need to. The, the guys that run this business, guys and girls that run this business, we need to get together, and we need to. We need to maybe change the way that we. Um, that we operate a little bit. Little baby steps will make a difference. Fantastic advice. So real quick, an opportunity for some levity before we wrap here. Do you, do you want to call attention to or give us just one highlight, one moment, that one experience that just brings a smile to your face that you feel we should know, one incredible day in the life uh, of of what seems like so many amazing moments that you've had. Well, there you know, so many, so many great. I, I, some of the rock and roll stories. Obviously, like when you're sitting around having dinner, everyone's like, "Oh, tell me about this. Tell me about that." And and you got we got stories. I you know, lot all of us have. I toured with Frank Sinatra, um, like I say, Judas Priest, all these things, and in their in their great times of their lives. So you know, the, some of the best times for me. Were definitely being on the road with Judas Priest as a as a young man, and that's another one. Talk about never heard of Judas Priest. I had no. I went from I think I went from the Antiques Roadshow to Judas Priest. Um, you know, we we used to we we would we would go and do these heavy rock shows. Me and this guy Jim Lawford, who's no longer with us, and to get over it, we would go and sit in the car park of stately homes and light. Um, vases and tables for the Antiques Roadshow. So we would go from from Judas Priest to the Antiques Roadshow to ACDC to 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 like. Um, but we had, like a lot of those a lot of those Spinal Tap moments that we had out on the road with Judas Priest were 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 just priceless. I mean, I waffled a little bit there, but I, I got so many great memories. I'm so thankful that I ended up in this business. And I I jump up every day and enjoy what I do. You know, I'm not as involved anymore as the actual physical putting these things together and traveling. But I've got amazing memories. I spent most of my teenage and, and my 20s traveling the world and someone paying me to do it, you know. It's a great business to get into. And, uh, you know, it's harder to get into now, obviously, because of the technology. Like we said earlier, you've got to be a lot smarter than you needed to be back in those days. But... There's still fantastic opportunities when this thing reopens. You know, it's a it is a it's a great a great business to be to be in. It really is. Well, on that note, any shout outs or parting shots before we wrap today? 
Not really. My, you know, the guys that I work with on a daily basis, you know, everyone's remained really positive. For, it, it, it was, it's been tough, like as you imagine, like a business that just stops like ours did. But the last couple of weeks, what I would like to say is everybody I speak to over the last couple of weeks now, they're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. They're starting to see people thinking outside the box. You know, we always knew that it wasn't really going to come from us. It was always going to come from our clients, the way that this was going to start to, we we're going to start to uh, re-emerge, re- let's say, from this from this darkness. And, and we're getting calls now daily from people that are just thinking outside the box, people that are trying to do stuff in, in um, you know, from, from the drive-ins that we all know about, you know, like doing a, you know, a drive-in show to, to a bunch of stuff that still is under NDA and some things. But just I'd like to say I'm really thankful for all the people that haven't given up, haven't just buried their heads in the sand, that are still getting up every day in an industry that, that, that for all intents and purposes has stopped dead. They're still getting up every day and and grinding and trying to find things to do, find ways around the the the, the guidelines that are going to be in place over the next few weeks to just still do stuff and bring entertainment to people and to and to employ the crew to get these people back to work um, because they you know it's always the way you know we'll survive we're a company we've got. You know, we've got reserves. We've had some good years, as all of these companies have. We will survive, and they're getting handouts from the governments as well. They're helping us survive. It's the it's the people that live that live in paycheck to paycheck that are really struggling at the moment. And um, you know, we're trying as hard as we can to get people back on board to to back into work as soon as possible. We just took about six hundred people back on board in Canada, um, and you know, in the UK, no one's really been been furloughed they've been they've been doing a great job of, of keeping everybody uh, on some form of pay and the same here to a certain extent but the american the subsidies that we had here have been tougher to to secure you know for us personally being a canadian company we've managed to find a way now it looks like it's looking better but you know my, my shout out goes to like i say all the people that are staying positive through this and and trying to find ways to get us all back to work as soon as possible. Because that, when I've watched what these people have been coming up with, it's been inspiring. Well, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you for that. Thank you, Mickey. You've been great. We've enjoyed having you. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your perspective. Uh, Shout out to Solotech. And uh, shout out to all the hustlers out there. That's it for us for today. If you have any questions... Hit us up on Instagram, HLUB Podcast, or send us an email to info at hustlelikeyoubroke.com. We thank you again. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Good night.